Join me in prayer. Hallelujah, you are our great God. And we join your creation to sing your praises. You have given us breath to that end that we might sing and speak and live to your honor and glory. And the truth is, Lord, we don't, we don't fully see it and get it. And so open our eyes, even as you're doing in this service, to the wonders of who you are and your great love for us in the gift of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, we're going cover to cover this fall in our study of God's Word from the very first book, Genesis, all the way to the last book, Revelation. And remember, it's a flyover, 40,000 feet. So we're going to be kind of starting slow here, Genesis 1 and 2. Bill said, wow, you're taking two, two messages and we're only getting first, through the first three chapters. Well, it's foundational stuff and we'll be kind of flying high in the days and weeks to come. But what we're doing is we're recognizing that there's a unity here to all of God's word. And the unity all comes together in the person of his son. And that's why the subtitle is Celebrating Christ from Genesis to Revelation. You remember last week I had you turn to the table of contents. And we looked at how the Bible's put together. 66 books written by over 40 authors. Um, But the Bible tells us that though there were 40 human authors, they wrote the very words of God through the Spirit of God using their personalities so that they gave us exactly what God wanted given, no more and no less. And as we think about how these two parts fit together, old and new, it's just good to remember the simple phrases. Old Testament, Jesus is coming. It's the promise of the Savior who's going to come. We're going to see the beginnings of that promise today in Genesis 3.15. And then over the New Testament, Jesus has come. And in effect, as you read the New Testament, and is coming again. And this unity can kind of be summarized by a a phrase that that kind of goes like this, because there's one message. And it's about God who created us, and God who is rescuing us or redeeming us for a relationship. And, And that rescue's happening through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's all to display who He is. His glory, His goodness, His love, His mercy, His holiness. And when we think about that one message, uh, we think about how it all ties together in that one person, Jesus Christ. Now, what we said is, it was a very good beginning, was it not? In Genesis 1 and 2, in fact, God kept saying it was good, it was good. It was very good. And, And what we know what was good is, God's people were living in God's place under God's rule. That's how Goldsworthy kind of coins it. And and what that means is Adam and Eve were created in God's image. And and they were in God's place, in his presence, in the Garden of Eden. And all was right with the world because they understood who they were and who God was. And they lived their lives as his loyal subjects, under his rule, under his word. God created this universe out of his word and he rules it by his word. And they were gladly under it. And so all was good. It was good with God. It was good with each other as husband and wife. 
and it was good in the world. That's the good beginning. Genesis 1 and 2. And as I said last week, it's a very short record of the beginning. Chapter 3, we turn the page and we move from the beginning of the story to the middle of the story. And we find out that the good beginning didn't last all that long. I want to tell you about my friend B. B was the head basketball coach for women's basketball at Indiana University. She coached women's basketball when Bobby Knight was coaching the men. She took her team to China. And after the tournaments on the last day, someone gave her some fruit, a couple of apples. She got them home. She gave one to her friend, and she had the other one. Her friend got sick, and B got sicker. In fact, she ended up in the hospital for two weeks, most of that time in intensive care. It so ravaged her immune system that since that day, B has never been the same. She's been really an invalid. And there's nobody that I've known in my 22 years in Wheaton, Illinois, that had been in and out of the hospital more than B. Why do I tell you that story? Because our first parents in Genesis chapter 3 got into some fruit. Fruit that wasn't necessarily bad fruit. It was fruit that they just weren't to eat of. And ever since they took of that fruit and ate it, we, humanity, has never been the same. So let's look at the story in Genesis chapter 3. If you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you, page 4. And as you're turning there, I encourage you to take notes. I encourage you to remember that there's a bunch of questions to help you keep learning from God's Word this week, whether it's on your own, with your family, with a small group. Use these resources as you grow in your understanding of God's Word. So let's read together verses 1 through 6. I'll read it. You follow along. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, when you get to this passage, it's very likely that you go, especially if this is the first time you've read it, is this for real? I mean, this is make-believe, right? I mean, this is a fairy tale. This, this, this isn't true, is it? Adam and Eve, there really weren't any people named Adam and Eve, were there? A talking snake? Come on. Well, it's good to remember that the Bible is an interpretation. It doesn't need to be interpreted. It interprets all kinds of things. It interprets who God is. It interprets history. And it treats this account as history. How do we know that? Because in the New Testament, the Bible 
at least six times references the names of Adam and Eve as real people. When Paul's preaching up on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he references that all the nations came out of one man. He's talking about Adam. Well, what about this serpent, this talking snake? Well, the Bible talks about him. In fact, in Revelation 12, 9, it tells us who the snake is. Look at it. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. He rebelled against God. He wanted to be like God. He wanted the throne. He wanted the glory. And he led a big rebellion against God. All these other angels followed him and God cast him out of his presence. Jude, verse 6, talks about this very thing. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, they forgot who they were. They forgot that they were the creatures and he was the creator. They lost their positions of authority and they abandoned their own home. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Jesus talks about the serpent, the devil. He says he's a murderer and he's a liar in John 8, 44, talking to a bunch of people who he calls Satan's children because they were unbelieving in him, says this, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies and what we're going to see here is his murderous lies are at work in genesis 3 and christ gave one more description of the enemy in john 10 10 he says he's he comes like a thief who comes to steal and to kill and destroy so when i come to genesis chapter 3 and this account i can't help but think of that park bench with that sign that says wet paint don't touch now i was thinking about that sign this week you know i've walked through lots of parks i mean a lot of parks and i don't usually go up and touch benches i don't usually do that but i don't know what it is about that sign i mean i'm thinking maybe they forgot maybe it's been here for a week and it's really dry and my curiosity gets to me. And I just want to see. I can tell that none of you have done that. <laughs> I mean, what is it? We don't go walking down the walls going, huh, I wonder if it's wet paint. We don't go up to door frames going, huh, I wonder if it's... But boy, we see the sign and we're curious. You know, God gave them everything to enjoy in the garden. And he put up one sign. Don't eat. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. You get that knowledge from me. Don't eat that. The day you eat of it, you're going to die. And they were drawn to that sign like mosquitoes to our porch light. Just like us. And what we see here is Satan's got a very clear tack. And he's using it today. And here's how it works. He says, I'm going to get Eve to doubt that God is good. When she doubts that he's good, she's going to think maybe his word's not good. And she'll disobey it. And 
then she'll think that maybe his rule's not good, and she'll reject it. That's his tack, and the whole focus is God's word, God's word. That's the crux of the temptation. So we see what happens here. The serpent begins by questioning God's word. Verse 1, did God really say? Did he say it? He questions the word. Then he lies and misquotes God's word. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Remember what God said back in Genesis 2? Look at it. 2.16, and your Bibles are up on the screen. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Wow, that's a great way to start the command. It's all yours. But, verse 17, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, then we note that Eve does something with God's word. If Satan's kind of taken away from it, Eve adds to it. And what does she say? Well, no, no, that's not what God said. He said, actually, we, we can't just eat from that one tree in the middle of the garden, and uh, we can't touch it. Well, wait, 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 wait a minute. God didn't say anything about touching it, did he? He just said you just shouldn't eat it. And she's got it mostly right, but she doesn't have it all right. She's adding to it. Now back to the serpent. Verse 4, he just flat out contradicts it, flat out rejects it. You will not surely die, he says to Eve. And then he does something so subtle. He's so good at this. He promises things that sound good that aren't good. He promises things that, that makes it sound like he can deliver on that, but he can't. And he says, God knows, verse 5, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Well, their eyes were opened. And they knew the difference between good and evil because they knew it in themselves. But they would never be like God. In fact, those two created God's image when they took the fruit. The image was definitely marred. You know, one of the things that's good to remember when we're in Genesis 3 is God's given us a portrait gallery. It's an amazing portrait gallery. It's the major portrait gallery of heaven that God wants us to see four major portraits. There's one that's our portrait. It's a self-portrait. It's the portrait of humanity. There's another that's the portrait of the enemy. There's another one. It's this grand masterpiece, but it's really dark. It's about this fallen world. But in the midst of it, there's this brilliant portrait of our gracious God. And, and it's just good to remember that we can see ourselves here in the very beginning pages of the Bible. It's describing us. And so Satan, he has questioned God's word. He's just flat out rejected God's word. He's been lying about God's character, lying about it, making promises those that, that are lies that he can't keep. All these things are going on. And the deal is, poor Eve, she's heard one word from God, and now she's heard exactly the other word from Satan, and she can't sort it out. So she does what's so often done today. In fact, we're told to do it. You ever heard this phrase? Follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. The prophet Jeremiah says, our hearts are deceitful. 
And, and who can know them? That, that sometimes our hearts, we think we want to be true to our heart, but our heart's not always true. It's not always following truth. But what does she do? She, she's going, man, I don't know what to do. I've got two competing words. And so, I, you know, I'm just going to go with my heart. It feels right to eat this because, man, it looks good. It's got to taste good, and I think it's going to be good because being like God, I, I know God. God's a good thing, and I can be like him and know good and evil. That's got to be good. So she takes it, and she eats. But let me ask the question, where's Waldo? Where's Waldo? Where in the world is Adam? Hello, Adam. Where are you? I can tell you, when I was a kid growing up, I knew what this picture looked like, this story. It was clear in my mind. There was a tree, and you know how it was always an apple. The scripture says it was an apple, but there was always apples, right, in our kids' storybooks. And there was a snake. He was up in the branch looking down at Eve, and there was Eve looking up at him. And Adam, he wasn't in the picture. He was out with the chimpanzees or something. I don't know where he was, but he wasn't there. But you read Genesis 3, verse 6, and we find out that when she ate of it, she gave some to her husband who was where? With. This is the tragedy of our parents' first sin. In fact, it's amazing. When the Bible describes the first sin, it doesn't credit Eve with the first sin. Well, we say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Come on. I'm reading this. This history. She took the first bite. Yeah, she did. New Testament says she was deceived. Apparently, Adam wasn't deceived. He knew God's word. She apparently knew God's word, too, because she's quoting it back. But he knew better. And he didn't say anything. And that's the great tragedy of the fall of mankind. Adam was a wimp. (laughs) That Adam was your classic passive man. And he gets nailed in the New Testament as the one who first sinned. As in Adam, all have sinned, Romans 5, 12. 1 Corinthians 5. In Adam, we all die. In Christ, we're all made alive. It's Adam's sin. And men, this is a wake-up call for us. We're knocking it out. We got so much energy for our careers, for our prof- professions, for, for our hobbies. And we come home and we're just stuck in neutral. And we are deaf mute. And we're not the spiritual leaders. You know what, Rome, uh, what the Bible says in Ephesians 5? It says if you're a Christian, you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You're to give yourself up for her. You're to die for her. Why? Paul says to make her holy, to make her more like Christ. And how are you going to do that? You're going to wash her with the washing of the water of the word. Ephesians 5, 26. And men, if we don't know the word, if we don't live the word, if we don't speak the word, we're not going to do what God's called us to do. And Adam should have said, don't do it. Eve, remember, we eat it, we're going to die. Believe God. He's a good God. He's given us everything. His word is true. Don't believe the snake. But he didn't say a word. And what happened is we see the pattern of sin. What is sin? Sin is unbelief. We don't believe that God's good. We don't believe that his word is true. We don't believe that he has the right to rule us. We reject that. 
And what we see here in Genesis 3 is a complete inversion of God's created order. It's gone upside down. You've got an animal ruling over a woman who's ruling over her husband who's ruling over God's word. It's completely upside down from how God created. And the interesting thing is when you move on in the text, God rearranges the order back in its rightful way as he works up the chain this time from the serpent to Eve to Adam. So we move on in the text. And we come to verse 7, and I just call this section cover-up. It's Eden Gate. We know a water gate and all the other gates. This is Eden Gate. Look what happens. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, just like the serpent said, right? But not what they were thinking. They're horrified. And they realize that they were naked. Look back at 225 in your Bibles. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now they're naked and they're ashamed. So what do they do? So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. All of a sudden, they see it clear. What do they see clear? They see themselves clear. And they understand what they've done. They have broken God's laws. They have sinned, rejected his authority. And they try and cover it up. They're sewing fig leaves. What else happens? Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I think what it's telling us here is that was his custom. God would walk in the garden. He had that kind of relationship with Adam and Eve. In fact, the whole word walk is just a metaphor for a right relationship with God. So later on in chapter 5, when everybody's dying, Enoch walks with God. He's a godly man, and he was not. God just pulled him out of that cesspool and what happens when they know and hear God walking well God calls him first right verse 9 the Lord God called the man Adam where are you and Adam answers I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid so their eyes are open their sins exposed what do they do what do we do we cover it up We cover it up. They get in God's presence. What do they do? They hide. They know they're in trouble. They are in serious trouble. And they know that they don't belong in his holy presence. So we go on. In verse 11. Well, before we go on, let me just say this. What's amazing about the story to this point is this. These guys have just thumb their nose at God. And God said, when you eat of the fruit, you will die. So I'm expecting lightning. I'm expecting squash. I'm expecting extermination. They're going to get it. And what amazes me is God is coming after them. He's pursuing a relationship with people who've just rejected him. That's the first brushstrokes of the brilliant portrait of our God. He's a pursuing God who loves sinners and rebels like me, like all of us. Now, go on in the story. God's grace is seen not only as he pursues Adam, but now as he confronts him. 
And this 14 and following, or verse 11 and following, actually, just reminds me of a parent. You've, you've been there if you're a parent. Uh, your kids are old enough. You know they've done something wrong, but you question them about what you already know so that they'll know that you know and that they know what they should know. Does that make sense? Yeah. So he says, verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, Adam has sinned before by keeping his mouth shut when he should have opened it. Now he sins by opening his mouth when he should have kept it shut. This is not a way to build your marriage, men. He says, verse 12, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. Oh, Adam, not a good idea. And what was doubly wicked about what he said is, not only wasn't it his fault, it was her fault, but it was worse than that, wasn't it? The woman, you! Look, if you hadn't given me Eve, I never would have taken of the fruit. Why don't you give me a good wife? Not one that's led astray. Come on. Give me a break. You see that? From doubting God's goodness to just flat out attacking it. So the blame game's on. The cover-up's going, isn't it? Well, Adam has his say. Now it's Eve's turn. Verse 13. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done, Eve? The woman said, like Flip Wilson, The devil made me do it. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. See what's going on? Oh, it reminds me of Lauren Bridget. They must have been four and two. I come home from work, and there's a new artist rendering on our wall. Lori says, can you believe it? The kids got in some crayons, and there they go on the wallpaper. And I say, girls, what happened here? Huh? I said, Laura, did you do that? No, no, Dad, I, I didn't do it. Bridget, did you do that? No, Dad, I, I didn't do it. I said, this is amazing. So there's this new artwork. Mom didn't do it. You guys didn't do it. Then who did it? Amber? Amber was our yellow lab. <laughs> well, that's what's going on. So they've been confronted with their sin, but they're blaming someone else. Is, that, is anybody here relate to that? Has God been kind of needling your heart, saying, hey, 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 you've eaten the fruit. You've broken my law. You're covering yourself up with fig leaves. You're running and hiding. You're making excuses. Well, the story goes on, doesn't it? What happens next? Well, God starts uttering words of judgment. First to the serpent, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life and I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So, here's the word of judgment. And let me just say this. Judgment is part of God's goodness. You go, I don't like that part of God. Yeah, you do. I'll tell you why you do. Because if you've lived as long as I have, you've experienced unfairness, injustice. And you know, a lot of times, you can't make it right. And it drives you nuts. And you and I live in a world that is full of injustice. 
and it grieves our heart how good to know that sin matters to God and that he will deal with it. Whether it's now or later, he will deal with it. That's part of God's goodness too. Even as his pursuing mercy is good, so is his condemning judgment. And so he brings judgment. He says, serpent, you're cursed above all the animals, above all the wild livestock. You're cursed and you're going to be crushed. You're going to be destroyed. And there's going to be a conflict. There's going to be a war between Eve's seed and, meaning Christ, and you. And what we have in verse 15, and you should underline it in your Bible. I'll even let you underline it in the Rack Bible so the next person who opens it sees it. Underline 315 and right next to it, first gospel. It's the first good news that God gives us about what? That one of Eve's offspring, specifically a male, he, this male, will be bruised, his heel. You can live from a bruised heel, but a crushed head, nah, you can't do that. He's going to have his heel bruised, but he is going to crush the serpent's head. Wow. God's grace. He's promised a savior, a deliverer in the midst of his word of judgment. Well, the text goes on. Next, the word of judgment comes up against Adam. Excuse me, against Eve. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I'll greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Thanks, Eve, right, ladies? (laughs) With pain, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, let's get that straight. Your desire, that sounds nice. Eve's going to desire a relationship, and, and maybe it's even the sexual desire of marital love that Song of Solomon talks about where this word is used one time. Is, is that what's going on? You're going to have these warm fuzzies for your man, but your man is going to be a harsh, he, he's, gonna be, he's just going to be a tyrant. Well, there's another way to understand that word. And it comes from the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. When God meets Cain, he says, Hey, Cain, I I know that you're bumming because I didn't accept your offering. And and I know that you're planning to kill your brother. Hey, Hey, Cain, don't do it. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is to control you. So this word desire here is that there's going to be conflict now in marriage and, and the woman is going to desire. She's going to want to control and exert control over her man and he's not going to be the loving leader. He's going to be harsh. That's what's going on here. So in each one of these judgments, you see conflict. Conflict between Christ and Satan. Conflict between the husband and the wife. This good, very good creation, it's very different. It's very different. And it's the world we live in. It's why we need to have a class like Bill's teaching on relationships. Because it's hard to live in a good way, even with the people we love the most. Well, it goes on, doesn't he? Verse 17. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife. Ah, there it is. She listened to the serpent. He listened to his wife, not God. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. You ever think about that? All that's kind of haywire in our world, the ground is cursed. Not just the thorns and thistles, but I'm thinking 
maybe the hurricanes and the tornadoes and the tsunamis and the famines all go back to not a good God who's lost control. Not to this pre-existent, all-powerful, evil force that's always been there, but because of man's sin, the ground is cursed. Whoa. And what does he say? Verse 18, it'll produce thorns and thistles for you and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return. So the ground's cursed. Work is now going to be hard and dust to dust. God formed you out of the dust and you're going back to the dust. You're going to die. You're going to die. So, what do we know about Adam and Eve? What do we know about ourselves? When our sin's exposed, we cover it up. Fig leaves, whatever. Whatever's there that's handy. When, um, when we find ourselves in front of God's holiness, His holy law, we hide. When we're confronted with our own sin, it's not our fault. We blame And that was all true for Adam. But the amazing thing is, when God made a promise, Adam believed it. He believed the promise of a coming Savior. How do we know? Because verse 20. And when you're reading through these uh, verses, verse 20 just sticks out and go, why is that here? Look at verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Why is that here? And isn't it interesting that it's here right after God said, dust to dust, you're going to die. And in the midst of the pronouncement of death, he says, I'm going to name my wife living because she's going to be the mother of all the living. That wasn't a cocky, arrogant statement. That was a humble, faithful statement, faith-filled statement where he says, I'm going to believe your word that that my wife is going to bear a son or in, in, in her line someday. I don't know how he understood it. But she's going to bear children and offspring. And through her offspring, there's going to come a deliverer. He believed it with all of his heart. So we finish out the story in verse 21. And we see more of the beautiful, radiant, brilliant portrait of our gracious God. First, in his provision. Remember now, they're standing before God in fig leaves. And then God says, and we read this in God's word, verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He clothed them. There's huge implications here. First one is this. We can't cover ourselves. We, We can't adequately come up with something that will deal with our own sin. We need his covering. And when we look at his covering, his covering is so instructive because what did it take for them to wear these garments? It it took an animal who would die, took a sacrifice. And and what we have in this garment is this beautiful symbolism here of, it's a visible symbol of the promise. This offspring is going to become your covering, your protection from sin so that you can live with God. And isn't it amazing, and isn't it a paradox, 
that the one who covers us hung naked on a cross. And so God is so gracious in providing a covering that just talks about how he deals with our sin and with death. And then he protects them. What does he do? Oh, he chases them out the garden, doesn't he? So in verse 22, it says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. You see, if they went back in and ate from the tree of life, they would forever be separated in that cursed condition as sinners. And so God won't let them back in. They don't belong in his holy presence. He doesn't want them to take of that fruit where they would live eternally cursed and separated from God. And so he banishes them. And that's God's good hand to get them out of there. And it was God's good hand that he posted cherubim in front. And there was that flaming sword going back and forth so they wouldn't go back in. And so sin like poison has dropped into the human blood. And we see it spread in chapter 4, Cain murders Abel. And in chapter 5, we keep running across the phrase, then he died, then he died. Everybody's dying because of sin. Sin is serious. It brings death. In chapter 6, we have the first account of the flood. And when God starts to describe the, the land of that day, if you think it's bad today, you get bummed out about where is America gone? We'll read chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord God saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain, and we know what he did. He wiped it all out. He's starting over with righteous Noah and his family. But they get off the ark, and we find out that righteous Noah, he's still sinning. And so God wipes out this wicked generation, but the sin problem is still there. It's still there. So what do we do? What do we do with Genesis 3? Well, we go back to that, to that eyeball on sight, to those glasses. Do you see it? And we've got to just say this. Do, do we, are our eyes open? Do we see the importance of this word of God and allowing it to be our guide? Do, do we see ourselves? This is a self-portrait. Do we get it fundamentally clear that this is anthropology 101 from God himself? We are sinners. I'm a sinner. We're messed up. And we live in a messed up world. And we can do one of two things. We can cover it up or we can confess it. And if you've never told God what he already knows, that's the first step. Telling him, God, I'm a mess. I have put the crown on my head. I've doubted you. I've rejected you. I'm a rebel. And then you you ask God to forgive you. And you do what Adam did. He trusted in the promise that there would be one who'd come to crush the serpent's head. You know, I love how Mel Gibson started his epic movie, The Passion. Perhaps you remember it, the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, it's more an artistic interpretation than it is an exact 
representation of the biblical account, but it is biblical in this sense. And I want you to look at it in light of what we've just read in Genesis 3 and see if you can connect the dots in a new way. Let's look. I think the dots were connected. (laughs) He came. He came to reverse the effects of the fall, to defeat the enemy. In 1 John 3, 8, the second part of the verse, we read, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And what's just the first light of dawn here in Genesis 3, 15 it's just going to be shining brighter and brighter and brighter all the time. In fact, Jesus is called in Malachi's prophecy and then in Zechariah's prophecy in the New Testament, the sunrise from on high. And, and as you get a glimpse of him today, may you be dazzled by his grace that would pursue you right where you are today, knowing what you've been in and done that he loves you, that you would be dazzled by a God who pursued you all the way to the cross through his son who died for you and for me. And as we see that light of who God is so perfectly shining through his son, may we worship him and live lives of worship and may we be a people who say, oh God, have mercy on me. Let's pray. So, Holy Father, we know how we treat people who've turned on us. You didn't do that. Lord, there is no way we'd give up a child for an enemy but you did that you are our great God and we worship you and we ask that you'd open our eyes to who we are and what we need and what you've given us in your son Lord thank you for your mercy that never runs dry. Amen.